And turn with me again this morning to the book of Lamentations as we continue our series there and come back to chapter 3. Just by way of review, last time we were in the book here in chapter 3, we were looking at really the high point of uh, of Lamentations, of the whole book of these five poems, um, and saw that the grief and suffering of the book comes to be focused particularly on one man, uh, this, this singular voice that uh, I'm arguing is really the voice of Christ for us in, in Lamentations. In verse 1, he steps forward and says, I am the man who is suffering. And then we go on to read of his suffering in, in ways that unmistakably point us to uh, the Messiah, his death and resurrection, and uh, his own people mocking him and, and his suffering in their place. Uh, and so because of his suffering, even in the midst of, of their own ongoing grief, the, the corporate voice, the people break in in verse 22, the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, his compassions never fail, they are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. And that was really the, that's the the center of the book and the, the high point of the book. And so this week, uh, now the, the man, the voice of Christ here, uh, addresses the people again. He speaks a, a sort of sermon to them, a message about um, uh, responding to grief, uh, how to go through grief uh, with faith. And we're going to take a couple of weeks to go through this, these verses that we'll read this morning. Uh, so hear, uh, hear how he instructs these Uh, suffering people, beginning in verse 25. He says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. For... The Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit. Of these things the Lord does not approve. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways. Let us return to the Lord. We lift up our heart and our hands toward God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. We'll end our reading there. We'll look particularly through verse uh, 39 this morning. I want you to, to notice, as we continue in this book, that verse 23 well, it might be a favorite of ours from this, this study. Great is your faithfulness, your mercies are new every morning, is not the last word in Lamentations. Uh, we may like when books end that way, end on that kind of note. We might wish that was, that was where this book ended. Uh, but the suffering of Jerusalem goes on. And really, our lives, we, we exist in the same kind of cycle. Right? We, we go through griefs, and then we find great hope again in the gospel and, and in the presence of God and, and so on. And then new griefs come, 
or old griefs fester, uh, the loss of loved ones, or our bodies breaking down, or the consequences of sin coming back. One of the key things we've noted in our study of this book is that the Bible gives voice to lament, to grief, and crying out to God. These things that that will not end in this life, they continue uh, through cycles even. And, And again, the Psalms give voice to sadness and grief and crying out to God and and here of course this book of lamentations the the entire thing and and despite much of the church neglecting lament that that part of the scriptures that that aspect of worship we continue to need these examples and affirmations and encouragements Uh, life continues to be grieving uh, and and hard things until Christ returns Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book uh, reflecting on his wife's death, uh, his wife Joy, uh, and his, the, the book is called A Grief Observed. And he writes in there about the idea of getting over it um, and, and the sense in which you really never do with, with this kind and many kinds of grief. He says, uh, he, he uses this metaphor, he says, to say the patient is getting over it after an operation for appendicitis is one thing, after he's had his leg off is quite another After that operation, either the wounded stump heals or the man dies. If it heals, the fierce, continuous pain may stop. Presently, he'll go back, he'll get back his strength and may be able to stump about on his wooden leg. He has got over it. But he will probably have recurring pains in the stump all his life and perhaps pretty bad ones, and he will always be a one legged man. There will hardly be any moment when he forgets it. Bathing, dressing, sitting down, and getting up again, even lying in bed, will all be different. His whole way of life will be changed. All sorts of pleasures and activities that he once took for granted will have to simply be written off. Duties, too. And then Lewis says of himself, at present I am learning to get about on crutches, figuratively. Perhaps I shall presently be given a wooden leg, but I shall never be a biped again. And and in that way, Lewis confesses the need... Uh, to, to the ongoing need to express grief, even in the Christian life, lasting, lasting painful consequences uh, in this life. And so again, Lamentations is, even in the, the, the grieving and lament of it, is, is a great encouragement to us, uh, as, if, as if it's coming alongside of us and, and grieving in our griefs. Uh, even the voice of Christ crying out in his own suffering, in his own grief, and as we've seen uh, grieving, pouring tears for your troubles uh, and for your sorrows and suffering on your behalf and encouraging Jer- Jerusalem and encouraging you, for example, in chapter 2, verse 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, to pour out your hearts before the Lord. Cry out to God. And so as we look at, at number one on your outline there this morning, we might uh, legitimately wonder... Looking at this, this sermon of sorts he gives to Jerusalem now, we might wonder how he begins his sermon this way. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. Verse 26, it is good that he waits silently. Verse 27, it is good for a man that he should bear the yoke, that he should deal with it, put up with it. Verse 28, let him sit alone and be silent. Again, this is after the speaker here has poured out his own heart to the Lord and encouraged the people, pour out your hearts, cry out to the Lord. Now he says, wait in silence. So which is it? 
Again, he's, last, last time we were in Lamentations, we saw in chapter 3, he has just poured out his heart in, in a complaint that the Lord seems like a, a, a backward shepherd turned against the sheep to him. He seems like an enemy. So has he changed his mind? Has he changed his advice to the people of God now in saying, it's good that you would wait silently. Just humbly wait for the Lord. Oh, no, I don't think there's a, a contradiction here. The Bible presents both of these things, both of these attitudes towards the Lord in, in their place. There's a time for crying out, for being honest, for being open and emotional with, with your Heavenly Father, asking why. But our ultimate posture is to be one of trust and submission and humility. The former ought always eventually to give way uh, to the latter. We find good illustration in, in this, and, and again, much of this book, in parenting. A parent is, is willing to heal, hear their child's thoughts and feelings and questions and cries and so on. But in the end, a parent wants the child to ultimately trust. Wants their submission and patience. And there, there's a place for both. The one resolves to the other. Think of Jesus' own example in, in his life of faith. It's not simply one or the other. Hebrews 7 describes Jesus' life. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Jesus poured out his heart before the Father. We see that most intensely in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. But then we also read of Jesus. Isaiah 53 is like a lamb led to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. First uh, Peter 2 says it this way, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that way, Jesus waited on the Father. He quietly and patiently waited. Even though there were times he cried out and, and pleaded as well. He stayed on the cross. He trusted the Father. Uh, he waited on the Father. His, his tears and cries gave way ultimately to quiet submission. That points us, I think, to consider what, what does it mean to wait on the Lord then, even in, in times of suffering. It means to fully trust him, right? to hope in his promises, to trust that he's really with you, to trust his power and goodness. To, to wait on the Lord means to acknowledge your own weaknesses, your own sinfulness, and, and so that you're totally dependent on him. Uh, David, in the Psalms, David, of course, offers many laments and loud cries and, and complaints and so on. But he repeatedly also tells himself to do this very thing. Psalm 62, he tells himself, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. You probably all have something in your life for which you maybe need to, to balance your, your prayers and your questions and your doubts and your fears with with waiting on the Lord. What is that in, in your life? And what do you need to, to wait on him in, in more complete and humble dependence as your creator and your sustainer and your savior and your father? Perhaps you've seen a, a child, maybe a toddler is really upset, crying to his mom and, and pouring out all of his reasons to be upset and he's, he's emotionally tired only shortly after to see the child sleeping on mom's shoulder. 
pour out your hearts like water to the Lord, but because of who the Lord is to you, you can let that resolve in contented, quiet waiting on him, right? sleeping on his shoulder, as, as it were. Another, another apparent possible contradiction here in, in what the, the, the voice of Christ gives here in this, this sermon on waiting uh, is in verse 25 itself, where he says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. Waiting and seeking. Supposed to be doing these at the same time. Well, if you, you know, imagine kids playing hide and seek. You have one kid who's hiding, right? He's waiting quietly, patiently, still. Supposed to be doing that, anyways. And the other kids are seeking, right? They're running around, they're looking actively, and so on. The, the two things, waiting and seeking, are very different, right? They look very different. Um, is this a contradiction? Again, the Bible holds these, these two things together, I think, as, as two sides of, of a coin of faith, if you will. Uh, seeking is, is striving to know the Lord better, to love him more, to know his will for you, to know what it means to trust him and how you would do that. Uh, seeking him is coming to him in prayer and, and listening to his word and learning of him, bringing him worship. All of that, even in the midst of suffering, all of it governed by humbly waiting. Seeking and waiting, not, not demanding all of the answers right now, not demanding immediately re- relief, not, not accusing God of injustice, but waiting on him as, as you seek him. And seeking God in, in the midst of grief will show you why you can wait on him. And that's why I want to turn at, at number, looking at number two on your outline there. Uh, and then consider the, the reasons the preacher here gives for humbly waiting. Why? How can we humbly wait on the Lord in, in such great suffering as this or whatever we're going through? And, and there's three answers, three clear answers that are given in this, in this message here, uh, up through verse 39. They, they have three verses each, so three clusters of three verses. So I'm going to look at those uh, in order. So the first answer that's given, letter A on your outline there, uh, that we can wait on the Lord uh, is God's compassion is abundant. God's compassion is abundant. Look at verse 31. That's where we read the word, first the word for. Here, here's the reason. For the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. Now, the basic point of the answer here is, is yes, God is is, is grieved by sin. Yes, God has brought this judgment, this great judgment on Jerusalem for us. Yes, God uh, allows hard, painful things in our lives. He, he chastens us. But there's no comparison ultimately between God's anger and, and, and hard things that he allows for our, for our good and his compassion and his love and his grace. They're, they're totally disproportionate in the person of God, in the way that they're presented in the scriptures. It's, it's his compassion for you, ultimately, that will overwhelm his chastening and his anger, and that will define his relationship with you forever. His grace, his, his anger and his chastening are, are real and serious and necessary, but they're temporary. His, his loving kindness is abundant, it's overflowing, it's forever. That's what this answer is telling us. This is how Paul puts this this imbalance in Romans 8, famously. He says, For I consider the sufferings 
of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. As, as hard as it is to see or to accept at times, your, your griefs and sufferings are a drop in the bucket, of, or the, a drop in the ocean, we might say, of, of God's uh, grace. We ought not to think of God as equal parts, anger and love. Um, that's not how he reveals himself in, in the scriptures. Uh, I'll give several more examples. Here, Deuteronomy 7 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And it says, And he repays uh, to their face those who hate him. Uh, a thousand generations of grace. And, and to one, yes, God judges those, those who reject him. This is prompts Christopher Wright to comment here. The, the imbalance between his grace and his anger is a thousand to one, according to Deuteronomy 7. C.J. Williams puts it this way, the hardships and chastenings he brings into the lives of his people are relative and contingent, but his mercy is abundant. Uh, there's another fascinating way it's put here in, in the message uh, of the speaker here in Lamentations 3. Look at verse 33. That's the one part of this answer I haven't re- read yet. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. He does not afflict willingly. It's not an interesting statement about God. The, the ESV puts it more literally, translates the Hebrew more literally here in saying that he does not afflict from his heart. He does not afflict from his heart. In other words, his, his mercy and his grace are from his heart, not his anger and his judgment in the same way. We need to be careful here theologically in how we, how we formulate this or what we understand it to be saying. This is not to deny that God is perfectly just, that he's full of wrath towards sin, that he does punish in, in hell forever those who, who reject his grace and are unrepentant. I think we can put it this way. He, he desires to be known for his loving kindness and his mercy and not his anger. The, the two are, again, described quantitatively and qualitatively differently in the scriptures. He, he is, God has never said in the scriptures to be full of wrath and slow to love. He's said many times to be slow to anger and abounding in love. Nowhere do we read that God is anger. We do read that God is love. And and this doesn't answer all of our questions regarding God's sovereignty and goodness and his sovereignty over evil and suffering. But what a great comfort it is that that the grief he allows is not from his heart, as the speaker puts it here, in the same way as his compassion and mercy. They're incomparable. Uh, Another couple of verses that that express that psalm 30 that we'll sing to close this morning his anger is but for a moment his favor is for a lifetime or micah chapter 7 uh, a, a different angle on this says you will not stay angry forever but you delight to show mercy god never is said in the scriptures to delight in being angry though it's perfectly right and just and necessary that he is but he delights in showing mercy. Again, I think parenting offers a a faint but good parallel and illustration. Good and loving parents must discipline. They must be angry, 
at times. It's, it's only right that they be angry and disciplined, but it's, and it's painful. But it doesn't come from their hearts in the same way that their love and compassion does. In fact, their anger serves their love and compassion uh, in, in a way, in, in good parents. Their desire is not to be known for their anger, but to be known ultimately in a relationship of love and, and to show lots of love. And of course, the way that God can be perfectly just and yet abound in loving kindness to sinners is only in, in the life and the death of, of Jesus. In his receiving on the cross the full just wrath of God for your sins and my sins uh, so that God can be just and, and, and punish sin and yet show great, great grace and great uh, loving kindness toward us. So that's the first answer offered here, is that God is abounding uh, in grace. The second answer, why we, can, why we can wait on the Lord, even in suffering, is that God is good and just. God is good and just. Uh, verses 34 to 36 describe oppression and injustice and fraud, uh, various things that cause suffering, and that the basic point is that, yes, these are under God's control, and that's hard to understand, but he's utterly opposed to them. You see that conclusion at the end of verse 36. Of these things, the Lord does not approve. Yes, God is using the Babylonians to bring this horrible but just suffering in Jerusalem, but God does not approve of what the Babylonians are doing in their own wickedness. God sovereignly allows and uses the reality of evil as, as, as consequences of sin, as means of turning sinners to himself, of sanctifying, and, and for many other reasons we can't know or understand. But it doesn't arise from his heart. He doesn't love these things, right? In fact, the, verses 34 to 36 describe how these things, they arise from the hearts of men and women. That's where evil comes from. God stands opposed to it. These verses imply what the rest of the scriptures teach clearly, that God will uh, judge once for all, one day. Uh, even though he allows and even and uses in his sovereign plan these things for now, he will judge them once for all. We sang already this morning from Psalm 96, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. Uh, we think of Isaiah 11, prophecy that we often hear it. Christmas time of the Messiah who will judge for the poor. He will judge for the humble. He will end all violence and injustice. We think of Revelation picturing Jesus as conquering king and, and sitting down on his throne of judgment. All evil, the Bible assures us, will be exposed one day. Even if people seem to get away with all kinds of things today. Luke 18, Jesus himself says, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest. Nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. And, and I want you just to note this is, this is the expectation of the speaker uh, here in Lamentations 3 as well. If you look at the end of the chapter, uh, beginning at verse 63, he says, Praying to the Lord, look on their sitting and their rising, I am their mocking song. You will recompense them, O Lord according to the work of their hands. You will give them hardness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. That's not a, a vengeful, hateful prayer. 
It's, it's a prayer of confidence that God will do justice. Right? That God will not just let evil go ultimately and forever. He won't ultimately treat those who, who confessed their sins and, and trusted in him and those who rejected him and did evil all their life. He won't treat them the same in the end. He will do justice. So what's the comfort of this? How is this a reason to wait quietly on the Lord in our, in our griefs? It's an assurance that God will fully vindicate his people. God will judge. He, he will be just. Those who do evil and do not repent uh, will meet his judgment. And, and he'll set things right forever. Uh, one commentator summarizes this, this part of the answer here. The God of all earth can be trusted to do justice. And that should have an effect on our peace and the way we live. You know, there's, there's a huge difference between the, say, the Wild West of the early 19th century um, and living somewhere like, like we do where we can know, in general, the, the police will show up and, and will we'll sacrificially protect. And in general, we can know that, that judges will put bad people in prison and, and mete out justice. Of course, it's an imperfect analogy. We live in an imperfect world. But, but trusting the justice of God gives us peace to wait, to wait on him. Well, this is a very, still a very hard thing to wrestle with, God's sovereignty and griefs that he allows in our lives. And, and so the speaker closes his message with, with a final piece of the answer, looking at number C on your outline, letter C there, uh, which is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and I would add in, in parentheses there, and who are you? God is sovereign, and, and who are you? And he, he makes this point with three questions. Verses 37, 8, and 9 are, are each a question, a rhetorical question. And, and the point here is, again, made balanced with the fact that, that the Scriptures clearly invite and condone bringing questions and doubts to God. Uh, but there must always be some kind of restraint. It must always resolve in humility and trust be, before an infinite and holy and sovereign God. And because our discontentment and our questions and our doubts can easily slip into or, or can imply an indictment against God, a discontentment with God himself, him being unfair, the sermon, I think, asks these questions in close. Verse 37, first, first question. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? This is much like the questions posed to Job at great length uh, or in Isaiah 40. Uh, the questions there where God essentially asks, um, were you there at creation? Right? Are, the, are the nations like dust before you? Are you the sovereign creator of everything that is in all of history? Verse 38, the next question extends this thought. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth. Everything, good and evil, is under God's sovereignty. And that, that's really a, a figure of speech, not thinking of two different things so much as, as the entire span of everything we can think of. It's like saying east and west. You don't mean two separate things. You mean everywhere, the entire span, under God's sovereignty. And then verse 39, the final question, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? What standing do you have to complain about anything? Uh, in, in view of your sins, 
particularly. That is, no matter what you suffer, and it may be terrible, it may be heinous, and the Bible doesn't downplay that. It offers much comfort. But whatever it is, it's less heinous then, and it's, and it's less than you deserve for your sins. In view of your sins. It asks, why should any living mortal, why the emphasis on a person who's living complaining? I think it's simply, if, if you are living, then you have far more than you deserve. And, and especially as a believer, you have and know an unspeakably more grace, far beyond just barely living. I, I think we could illustrate part of what these, these questions are getting at for someone who's Suffering and might be content, uh, might be might be tempted to uh, blame God or or complain, uh, are complaining against God about his griefs, about our griefs, and and demanding answers again, though he he graciously hears our cries. Uh, in the end, can be like uh, a convicted murderer who's in prison, complaining bitterly about the the sheets not being soft enough, right, and demanding to have a full explanation for that. Right? What, a, what a ridiculous situation that would be, a ridiculous complaint. We would say, Mr. Murderer, what, what standing do you have to make such a complaint? Right? What, you show no remorse for the evil you've done, the suffering you've caused, and yet you want to know all the particulars of the thread count and the process of ordering linens in the correctional system and so on. Right? No one is under any obligation to explain or debate with you all that goes into the, the state budget, budgeting process and the prison budgeting process and the, the, all the staff and those who are responsible for, for uh, ordering linens and things and how they're made and what the thread count is and what other prisons are offering for their inmates. It's ridiculous in view of your sins. I think all three of these questions can be read in part in, in, in that way, in, in part with that tone, as a, as a rebuke, as a warning against going too far in complaining and placing ourselves above God and his sovereignty and his wisdom. The, the, again, the latter chapters in Job are a, an extended, uh, a powerful version of that. Uh, Paul offers a version of that in Romans 9, dealing with these difficult questions, saying, Who are you, O man? But I think primarily this, these, these questions, this part of the answer to why we can wait on the Lord is intended as a comfort. Especially verses 37 and 38. Look at verse 37 again. Verse 37 implies that if God is sovereign creator and you are not, then there may be questions that confuse and frustrate you, but they're not a problem for God. They don't trouble him. He knows them perfectly. He's, he's created and ordained all of it from the beginning. Verse 38 implies it, it may be troubling to think that God is sovereign and, and there is evil in the world and suffering along with good. But that too is, is in fact a great comfort. God is sovereign over both. Because the, the alternatives to that are terrifying. I was listening I used to listen to NPR a lot uh, in the car, and several years ago, um, they were interviewing Rabbi Kushner, probably the most famous rabbi in the U.S. He, he, um, his, he had a son die tragically, and wrote a famous book reflecting on that called Why Good Thing, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Um, and the interviewer, NPR, was talking to him about 
various things and about the book, having a discussion, and then the interviewer asked this. So did your son's death and all the good that came out of your book and people were helped by it and so on, did it help you to understand that God uses bad things and, and bad circumstances to bring some good in the end? And Rabbi Kushner quickly said, no, you don't understand what I'm saying. The point is God had nothing to do with my son's death. That was, his, that was his answer. Is that the God that we serve? A God who gives us good things and sort of sits back and wishes us well in, in our struggles and suffering because he can't do anything about it. Do we expect to see God's hand and his glory simply in, his, in blessings and comforts in this life? Or can we expect to see his hand and his glory in all things, good and bad, that come to us? Again, the only alternatives to God's sovereignty over all things are, are either there is another evil actor doing, you know, doing the bad things in our lives, and God is sort of doing as much good as he can, but he has no control over this evil actor. Or the other alternative, the only other alternative, is that your griefs and sufferings are utterly random and utterly meaningless. And any comfort you might find is is utterly a lie and vacuous. Lamentations 3, along with all the scriptures, assures us that a good God with a perfect plan is sovereign over all. So here's the answer that the voice of Christ here offers to why we can wait on the Lord with patience, because God abounds in grace and compassion, because God is just, he will set things right one day, and because God is God and you are not, he is a sovereign and good God who has ordained the end from the beginning. He's working all things, good and bad, together for your good and for his glory. The Lord is good to those who wait for him.